The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, we'll be reading through verse 22 this evening. The word of the Lord. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, but the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you." And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara." For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. 
The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, we'll be reading through verse 30 this evening. The word of our God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for that we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to the book of Ruth, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Uh, that opening line from Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities, is one of the best-known opening lines in all of literature. Part of what makes them so engaging is that this line is true of almost every age, and it depends entirely upon your perspective and your own circumstances. For example, sometimes white evangelicals in America look back on the 1950s and say that was the best of times. But as Vody Balcom likes to point out, it wasn't the best of times for people of his skin pigment. If you don't know, Vody Balcom is a black man. For many of us in this room, America is a wonderful place to live, a, a land that provides us with a large degree of freedom, excellent medical care, and at least the hope of meaningful employment. But for those growing up in Camden, New Jersey, or in the Desire Street projects in New Orleans, 
Uh, the life that you and I live here in New England is as far removed from them as the lives they see of people in a science fiction movie. They can scarcely relate to it. So much, indeed in one respect almost everything, depends on individual circumstances and individual perspectives. Sometimes even when we share the same circumstances, our different, our different perspectives on those circumstances can cause us to experience them differently and to respond to them in radically different ways. I think of when I first went to Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, the seminary was growing. They had run out of student housing. So they bought a couple of houses just outside the campus grounds. And that's where me and three other men were assigned to live in one of these houses. Uh, regrettably, the seminary hadn't gotten around to cleaning the house. They just closed on it. And honestly, it was disgusting. The house was absolutely filthy. Two of the other men assigned to live in this house were so disgusted by the house, they went and talked to the administration, and they got assigned to live somewhere else. But my roommate, Charlie Perkins, who's now an OPC minister out in Arizona, um, he had just come off a submarine. And he kept walking around going, it's so big, it's so spacious. And I had recently come out of the desert serving as a Marine Corps officer, and I was just really excited that we had running hot and cold water. Turns out that although our, our circumstances were identical with these other two men, um, our previous circumstances and therefore our perspectives shaped the way that we saw this house and shaped the way that we responded to the opportunity. This evening I'd like to look at Ruth chapter 1 is a tale of three perspectives. We encounter three women in this story whose lives are deeply intertwined, yet who look at life very differently from one another. First, there's Orpah. Orpah is someone that we would generically describe as a good person. Uh, she was an excellent daughter-in-law to Naomi, and apparently quite a good wife to one of Naomi's sons. She was kind and considerate. She was also an unbeliever. We have many neighbors that are like this. Uh, unbelievers that we are happy to have as friends, happy to have as neighbors. Because by God's grace, they behave in generally upright ways. They're a delight to be with. They're responsible. And they're even willing to sacrifice some of their own pleasures for the good of other people. Next, there's Naomi. Naomi is a believer in Yahweh, or if you don't want to comment on her faith quite yet, Naomi is someone who is set apart as being part of the people of God. She grew up as a covenant child. She was instructed in the ways of the Lord, and yet that is not the way that she lives. She is very much focused on the horizontal plane, focusing on her own circumstances and trying to make those circumstances better by doing what is right in her own eyes. Even when she invokes the Lord, she does so seeking physical benefits in the here and now. And third, there is Ruth. Ruth the Moabite had become a worshiper of Yahweh. 
In fact, Ruth demonstrates deep devotion to the Lord, and she lives her life in a God-centered manner. Yet rather than this making her so heavenly-minded that she is of no earthly good, Ruth's devotion to Yahweh leads her to act toward Naomi in ways that bring about great blessings in Naomi's life. And then finally, we're going to look at Naomi once again at the end of the sermon, in particular to see the relationship between Naomi and her God. Because in many ways, remembering that this is the period of the judges, Naomi in her person is representative of the people of God at this time. They are largely faithless, at best lukewarm in their devotion, yet though they are faithless toward their God, they remain deeply loved by the Lord. And God shows his faithfulness and his kindness and love toward his people by showing it to Naomi. Let's see how these three different perspectives play out in tonight's passage. We begin with the young Moabite woman named Orpah. Now, Orpah is actually a very minor character in this story. Uh, Although she is a real flesh-and-blood human being, the way that her life plays out in the story of Ruth is primarily as a backdrop that casts light on the characters of both Naomi and of Ruth. But if we don't understand that Orpah is basically a good person, we're going to miss out on something rather significant about the choices and the sacrifices that Ruth is willing to make. Like Naomi and Ruth, Orpah has lost her husband. She is a childless widow. The end of the famine in Bethlehem may have been great news for Naomi. It may have been great news for the people in Bethlehem, but it actually presents Orpah with a type of crisis. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Verses 6 and 7. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Um, I want to draw your attention to the fact that the author of Ruth narrates this story primarily using singular verbs with Naomi as the subject, right? Naomi arose. She had heard, so she set out, right? The verbs are singular with Naomi, and the daughters-in-law are then added on to go with her. It's only when we get to verse 7 at the end that we hear, and they went, Uh, Whether you've thought about it or not, the impact of this particular uh, literary device is it makes clear that Naomi is the focus of the story, not Orpah and not even Ruth, although, of course, what's going on with Naomi impacts them dramatically. Pause for a moment and consider the crisis that Orpah was being presented with. Her husband is dead. I mean, that's a terrible tragedy. And I think the way to read this story is we realize that Naomi's husband has died 10 years or so earlier, and Orpah's and Ruth's husband have died much more recently. Her husband is dead, and now her mother-in-law is getting ready to go back 
to Bethlehem. What is she supposed to do? Well, we have to realize that going from Moab to Bethlehem is not the same thing as going from New Hampshire to Pittsburgh. Bethlehem's in a foreign country. It's in a country that is hostile to the Moabites. If Orpah returns with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem, she's going to a strange land that she's never been to before, and she has every reason to expect that she is going to be an outcast there, despised. Uh, She has no reason to think that any Jewish man is going to look upon her and go, wow, what a catch. And she's going to find rest, as it were, in the home of her husband in Bethlehem. Nevertheless, as Naomi begins to head home, Orpah finds herself traveling with her. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, And they lifted up their voices and wept. Now, at least on the surface, this appears to be a very loving thing that Naomi is doing for her daughters-in-law. Naomi is recognizing that if they come back to Israel with her, their lives are going to be hard. And on a purely superficial basis, their lives are going to be easier if they stay in their own homeland. They go back to their mother's homes, and presumably they find Moabite husbands and they get married, and they live something like happily ever after. We will see in a moment that things are a bit more complicated than this, but at least on the surface, we see three women who've experienced tragic loss, who are actually caring about each other, trying to look out for each other's best interests. What I want you to consider is what sort of woman Orpah actually was. Naomi says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, in my judgment, actually gives us a much better feel for what's going on than our own ESV does. The Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible translates the verse like this. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. That's what Naomi's getting at. Not not simple kindness, as important as that can be, but faithful love. She's saying, may the Lord show that faithful love to you, as you have shown faithful love to my son and also to me. And we see her faithful love and what she and Ruth are prepared to do next. Naomi has urged them to stay in Moab. But then we read verse 10. But they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. I want to say that Orpah is a basically good person. She's a non-believer, but she's someone that you would like to have as a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend. And her willingness to sacrifice her own well-being, at least on a external basis, in order to be a blessing to her mother-in-law, shows something remarkable about her. The reason why we want to grasp this is, we don't want to think that Orpah going back to her 
kinsman, somehow marks her out as she's the bad person and Ruth is the good person. We need to see Ruth's decision to follow Naomi as something other than simply being a better human being. As I say, in many ways, Orpah was an admirable, an admirable young woman. This brings us to Naomi. Look at verses 11 through 14 with me. Verses 11 through 14. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi is painting an extremely grim picture of what life will be like for Ruth and and, um, Orpah if they return to Bethlehem with her. Uh, Because many evangelicals misunderstand the book of Ruth in one particular way, I want to point out something that Naomi does not say to her daughters-in-law. Naomi does not say, if you return to Israel with me, I have good news for you. There's this law in the Torah called the Law of the Kinsman Redeemer. And one of my near relatives is going to have to, by obligation, commit to marrying you. So you will have husbands and you'll be able to raise up children in Israel. Naomi doesn't say that because that isn't true. The law of the kinsman redeemer in the Bible is not about marriage. It's only about land. It's about redeeming the land that Naomi has so that that land will stay in the family. It's going to turn out this is important to get as you read the book of Ruth. Because as most of you realize, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, will also marry Ruth. You have to ask yourself, how does that go together? How does the land promise, the obligation and the opportunity to redeem the land, go together with marrying Ruth? Well, we're going to have a little delayed gratification. We'll wait a couple weeks to hear about that. But I want you to realize that is not what the law of the kinsman redeemer means. And if you don't get that, you're going to misunderstand a big part of what is going on. So tuck that in your memory. For the kinsman redeemer who buys Naomi's land will also marry Naomi's daughter-in-law. By the way, there is a law that uh, requires brothers to raise up children to their Uh, deceased brothers' wives, but it only applies to brothers. That's called the Leveret Marriage Law. And Machalon and Kilion are both dead. There are no brothers left to satisfy that. So as I say, a key part of interpreting the whole story is figuring out how those two things, marrying Ruth and redeeming the land, end up being joined together. For now, let us think about Naomi. Naomi is warning her daughters-in-law of hardship, and she is willing to be bereft of them, apparently out of the hope 
that they might enjoy better lives in Moab. In some ways, that's very moving language. With moving language, Naomi makes clear that she certainly doesn't expect that anyone is ever going to marry her, I mean, after all, at her age. And even if someone did, it would be a farce to suggest that Ruth and Orpah should wait until her sons grow up so that they could marry them. So Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and travels back to the home of her birth. But now we learn something that is not so flattering about Naomi in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods return after your sister-in-law. See, Naomi's encouraging Ruth to turn back as well, to please mark the language, and to her gods. See, Naomi is not at all concerned about her daughter-in-law's spiritual well-being. She's not concerned that she follows Yahweh, the only true God. At the very least, this shows a disregard for the importance of Yahweh in her own life, and to some degree, a pretty significant disregard for her daughter-in-law. After all, if her daughter-in-law goes on living in idolatry, she's putting herself under the wrath of Almighty God forever. Now, please skip down to verse 18 with me. Verse 18. As we know, Ruth is committed to returning to Bethlehem with Naomi. And when we come to verse 18, we're told this. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, She said no more. Actually, there are a few times in this passage where our translation is kind of smoothing it out to make everyone seem nicer than they really are. What's actually going on here is not Naomi saying, oh, I give up, no more arguing. Literally, it says, and she stopped talking to her. They don't talk for the rest of the travel back to Bethlehem. See, Naomi is ticked off that Ruth is choosing to go back with her. It doesn't please Naomi that Ruth is going back. It isn't simply about Ruth. The fact that Naomi did not embrace Ruth's sacrificial decision to return to Bethlehem with her may suggest, I want to say it does suggest, that she wanted to get rid of this Moabite woman who would be a constant reminder to everyone that Naomi and Elimelech had abandoned the promised land and that their two sons had taken the reprehensible step of marrying Moabite women. See, we have a problem because we know in advance Ruth turns out to be this wonderful character. But that is not the way people would have naturally seen her if all they knew she was a Moabite. And if you want people to feel sorry for you, which Naomi very much does, a little earlier in the passage she actually says, to her daughters-in-law, it is far worse for me than it is for you, right? She's feeling sorry for herself, even above her daughter-in-laws who have more recently lost their husbands. If you want people to feel sorry for you, it is best to not have a living, breathing reminder of your unfaithfulness and your own culpability walking around for everyone to see. And so Naomi feels a lot better about going back to Bethlehem by herself 
as a widow that people will feel sorry for than going back with her Moabite daughter-in-law. So the first thing to note about Naomi is that she was quite content to have her daughters-in-law return to paganism. She actually encourages Ruth to do that, like her, her, her uh, sister-in-law. And second, she would very much have preferred if Ruth hadn't returned to Bethlehem with her. Naomi's third character flaw is presented to us directly in verses 19 and following. Please look there with me. Picking up in verse 19, we read this. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Well, you can imagine the stir. I mean, Bethlehem's a little town. You know, we sing a little town of Bethlehem. That's totally true, right? Bethlehem's a little town where everybody knows everyone else. And actually, they know a great deal about each other's business. But Naomi and Elimelech had left more than 10 years earlier. By this time, probably many people in the town are wondering if they'd ever hear from her or ever see her again. And then suddenly, there she is. Yet instead of rejoicing, but the Lord has sustained her and brought her home in spite of her own sinful choices and behavior, Naomi casts the blame for her circumstances squarely on the Almighty. She doesn't even want people to call her by her name. Uh, Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. She wants them to call her Mara, which means bitter, right? And, and she's rightly identifying something about her life now. Naomi is bitter. She has become a bitter person. But in staying, instead of seeing this as a problem in her own heart, she's laying all the blame on God. Instead of saying, I am wrongly bitter, she says, the Lord is making me bitter. He is dealing bitterly with me. Naomi wants everyone to know that the Lord isn't treating her well. So instead of turning from her own faithlessness, she is essentially accusing the Lord of being faithless in his promise to bring blessings upon his people. What Naomi doesn't seem to realize is that the Lord is in fact blessing his people with food, not because they repented, but just out of his grace. She is, after all, returning at the beginning of barley harvest, and that is why she's returning. She had heard the Lord had given them food. But even more than that, but the Lord is giving her an extraordinary blessing in the person of this Moabite, Ruth, who is walking back to Bethlehem with her. We, however, already know the story. And so we can begin to see those blessings in verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Orpah was what we would call a good person. 
She was a faithful wife and a loving daughter-in-law, yet she did not know the Lord. And so she returned to her mother's house and presumably to her Moabite gods. Naomi was raised as a covenant child. She and her people had been entrusted with the very oracles of God. Yet instead of seeing the consequences of her her own and her husband's faithlessness as being their own fault, Naomi openly blames her hard life on the Lord. As she returns to Bethlehem, Naomi is angry at Ruth for stubbornly coming with her, and Naomi is angry at her God. This brings us to Ruth. Look back up to verse 16 and following. Naomi has been pressing Ruth to follow Orpah by returning to her mother's house and to her pagan gods. But Ruth replies, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi had said, return to your people and to your gods. Ruth replies, Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Now, in Hebrew, Ruth's beautiful confession is very compact. This is normal in Hebrew. It's very common, but the to-be verbs are not spelled out in the text, which means you have to supply them. That's obvious. What's a little less obvious is what tense you supply them in. It's pretty common in English as a traditional translation to translate these like the ESV does as future tense. Your people will be my people. But as Ruth is saying something in the present about the future, your people will be my my people, your God will be my God. But I want to suggest that the better way to read this is to read it with a present tense verb. That is, Ruth has already become a follower of Yahweh while in Moab. This is not a new reality that she's saying, in order to stick with you, Naomi, I'm going to convert and become a worshiper of Yahweh. Rather, she's saying, I've already been transformed to become a follower of Yahweh, and that is why I am doing all of these things. And one support for this reading is that Ruth takes her vow in the name of Yahweh. Now, that can get obscured a little bit. We use Lord in all caps to indicate Yahweh, but it still can register in our thinking like she's talking about a title. You know, Lord, God, Lord, God, they mean the same thing. But she's not simply appealing to a generic God. She's swearing her oath in the name of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And so we are confronted with a wonderful irony of God's sovereign grace. The native-born Jew, Naomi, appears to be faithless, while the Moabite has become a picture of covenant faithfulness. Intriguingly, while Naomi may have been embarrassed to have this Moabite woman come back with her, that is not the response of the people in the town. 
In particular, it is not the response of Boaz. A little bit later on in the story, Boaz will tell Ruth this. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That is this great man of God, Boaz is a great man of God. This great man of God recognizes Ruth to be both a woman of great character and of great faith. That he learned these things from other people, because he says it's been told to me, fully told to me, makes clear that there were at least several other people in the community of Bethlehem who had recognized that Ruth was a woman of great character and also great faith. Though she was born a Moabite, By the grace of God, she had come to seek refuge under the wings of the Almighty, the God of Israel. Well, that's the tale of three women. Orpah, though she was a pagan, was a faithful wife and a faithful and loving daughter-in-law. Naomi, though she was a privileged child of the covenant, walked away from the land of promise and then blame the Lord for the consequences of her own rebellion. And then there is Ruth, an outsider, whom the Lord chose to bring into his family. To paraphrase what the Apostle Paul would later write to the Romans, although Ruth did not by nature possess the Torah of God, by her actions she was demonstrating, but the Lord had written his Torah upon her heart, and that she too was a daughter of Abraham. That brings us back to Naomi one more time, and in particular to Naomi's relationship with the God of Israel. Naomi in her own person largely represents Israel at this time in Israel's history, which is the time of the book of Judges. Remember, the book begins in the days when the judges judged. The common refrain that we hear in Judges is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sometimes we have to remind Americans that's actually bad. Americans are so used to our own sense of autonomy, we could take that as being good. This is God's condemnation on the people of Israel at that time. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Instead of living as though their chief end was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, Naomi and many of her fellow Israelites simply sought their own pleasure and prosperity. Instead of trying to figure out their place in God's plan, they set their own plans and simply wanted God to bless them. When their plans led to hardship and loss, but then began to publicly doubt the Lord's goodness. Now these events may be more than 3,000 years old, but it is not hard to grasp how many nominal Christians in the United States and casual churchgoers in the United States approach their religion in exactly the same way. That is, they're not seeking to glorify and enjoy God. They're saying, 
How can adding a little bit of God to my life make my life a little bit better? And if their life gets hard, they start to question whether or not God is good and whether or not following him, as they imagine they're doing, is actually worth it. Indeed, looking too closely at the state of the church in America can become a rather discouraging experience, but through tonight's passage, the Lord is calling us to lift our eyes. Part of what makes God's grace so amazing is that we are such miserable wretches without it. This is one of the great blessings of entrusting ourselves to the Lord's sovereign grace. If the future of the people of God depended on the Naomi's of this world, the future of the church would be bleak indeed. Yet through the simple choices of Elimelech and Naomi, our gracious God had grafted the Moabite named Ruth into his family. The Lord was powerfully at work in her life, transforming her into a great woman of God. And through Ruth, the Lord would raise up King David, the man after God's own heart, the king who would shepherd his people so that they would no longer do what was right in their own eyes. And through Ruth and through her descendants, the Lord would send his own son to be the savior of the world. And so as you look at the church, and you look closely and you see the church today, warts and all, it is perhaps good if you grieve a little bit. It is good if you pour out your heart to the Lord, pleading for revival and for reformation. But beloved, please don't look upon the church in despair. Remember that the Lord loves his people with an everlasting love. And even when we cannot see it, Remember that Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Praise be to God. Amen.